there's a huge percentage of people whose stories have never been told. So if you look at the story of running that's been told, it's been, you know, for the most part, one particular story, which is obviously valid for a large amount of people in this country, in this world. But then there are so many other stories that have not been told. And I hope that's it. You know, like I think about my non-binary friends who are involved in um, finally getting, for example, the Boston Marathon to establish a category for non-binary folks with prize money. Like, I want to read Lauren, Jake, two of my activist friends. I want to read their book. I want to read Running While Non-Binary, you know, like, and being able to understand people's experiences. My intent is not to devalue, for example, your experience, Mario, right? It's just to show you other people are having a different experience. Maybe I wasn't aware of it. Now that I am, what can I do to expand my wonderful experience and ensure that they have it too? What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. I've got a great episode for you this week with Allison Mariella Desir, who is making her second appearance on the podcast. If you missed our first chat, go back in the archives to episode 168, where you can learn more about Allison, her background, how she got into running, and the work that she's done as a community builder and activist. This conversation was a very topical one and centered around Allison's new book, which is called Running While Black, which is available for pre-order right now and will be available for purchase everywhere on October 18th. We talked about the book, how it came to be, and how it evolved during the process of writing it. Allison shared some of her experiences of being a black woman in a very white space. She told me about the impact she hopes her book will have on its readers. We discussed what reimagining the run could look like for future generations, and so much more. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I have been waiting a long time to tell you about the new Fuel Cell Rebel V3, and I am thrilled that I can finally spout off about it. Longtime listeners may remember that I sang the praises of the second edition of this shoe, and for good reason. It's a fast, fun shoe that I really just love to run in. The new Rebel V3 is everything I enjoyed about its predecessor, but with a more supportive upper, a little more cushion underfoot, and a more durable outsole. What it doesn't have more of, however, is weight. It checks in at just under 8 ounces, making it a great Go fast shoe for tempo runs, track workouts, and interval sessions on the road. Also, like its predecessor, it does not have a carbon plate and will allow your foot to move naturally and without influence. Out of the box, it fits like a glove, and I can already tell that its spot in my rotation is not under threat. The new Fuel Cell Rebel V3 is available in both men's and women's sizes on NewBalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. I'd also like to thank the Monterey Bay Half Marathon for supporting the show this week. I am stoked that this race is back. Registration is now open for this fast, scenic course along the beautiful Monterey Bay coastline in California on November 13th. My wife ran the Monterey Bay Half a few years ago and absolutely loved it. It's a spectacular course with amazing views along the coastline of waves crashing on rocky beaches, Victorian-era homes, and incredible aquatic life. So if you're looking for a fall race with a high potential for a PR, this is your course. In addition to the Sunday race, there's also two Saturday races, the Pacific Grove Lighthouse 5K and the By the Bay 3K. Runners who want to run Saturday's 5K and Sunday's half marathon can opt for the Ocean View Challenge and receive three medals and two shirts for your efforts. Sign up to run this coast on November 13th 2022 go to montereybayhalfmarathon.org for more information and to register for the event that's montereybayhalfmarathon.org okay please enjoy my conversation with athlete activist and now author allison mariella desire
Mariella Desir. We had our first conversation for the Morning Shakeout podcast a little over a year ago, which is kind of mind-blowing to me. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. And in it, you mentioned that you were working on a book. And here we are a little over a year later. And that book is due to come out soon. It is a real pleasure to welcome you back to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. I am so happy to be here. So last time we talked, the book was, I mean, really in its infancy. It had a completely different name than Mm -hmm. what's coming out. I mean, you were just like really starting to get working on it. And now it's done. Manuscripts in, edits are done. You're just waiting for the book to come off the press. I'm just curious, like, how are you feeling right now? Like a little over a month out as of this conversation. Man, I'm feeling very excited, but also the reality that like, hopefully thousands of people will read this book is setting in. And, you know, when I was talking to you, as you said, it was just in the beginning of the process. And at that point, I hadn't really thought about making it as much of a personal memoir as it in fact is. Mm -hmm. So a little over a month out, I'm like, oh my goodness, like everybody's going to know how I grew up. Everybody's going to know these moments that might have seemed small for the people who were there for them, but those people are going to now know how big an impact those moments had. So it's just like a, oh my God, <laughs> this like, and there's no stopping it. Like it's, it's happening, you yeah. know? Is there any part of that that makes you nervous just as far as how it's going to be received maybe by some of those people who you know, or is it more how it's going to be received on a wider scale? You know, honestly, both. I know my intention with writing it. Um, I hope it's clear what that intention is. But once you put any kind of piece of art out in the world, whether Mm. it's a book or painting, um, it becomes open to interpretation and open to how people are going to project their feelings and their experiences onto it. So um, actually, part of that is exactly what you want, right? Because Mm -hmm. in that way, books and other forms of art become internalized and part of other people's experiences. But um, I'm certain there will be some hate mail from particular chapters in this book. And that is honestly, that's part of the the process. And it means that people are talking, which Mm -hmm. is a good thing. In that specific regard, do you do anything ahead of time to just sort of get yourself ready for that. Mm. Um, You know, whether that's like, what did it, like, you know, all right, there are certain people here who aren't gonna really take too kindly to, to what I wrote, but I stand behind it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the truth. It's my truth in some Mm -hmm. instances and it doesn't matter if they like it or not. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this is what it is, but how do you like prep for that, you know, Mm -hmm. ahead of time? And can you? Yeah. You know, my biggest, like, of course, there's going to be trolls and I'm sure that people are going to write things about me. And honestly, that's not my biggest concern, right? Like people will do that. Um, my concern is, of course, my physical safety and the safety of my family and my son. So um, as always, I'm really intentional about not sharing exactly where I am or where I live or anything like that. And just um, trying to prepare for what happens if somebody shows up in person who is upset or aggressive. I mean, and, you know, I'm not, the things I'm talking about are not necessarily earth shattering, um, but you just never know how people will react. So I'm just trying to stay centered and grounded in, in in the fact that this is my story and I know why I wrote it. And as long as people don't mess with me or my family in person, let's have debate and conversation because that's what's going to ultimately um, get to the kind of change that I want to see in the running industry. Yeah. When you first conceptualized the idea for this book, or maybe a publisher came to you with the idea for the book, I don't know the the origins of it. Let's just start there. Like, what yeah. are the origins of the book? Is this something that, you know, you had been thinking about or knew you had in you, and mm-hmm. at some point you would eventually write it? Or were you kind of nudged by some other folks to, like, really dig into it and devote your time and energy and attention to it? Yeah, I had my whole life I had wanted to write a book. Um, in fact, I have like several old <laughs> manuscripts that are like even too painful to look into. Um, and I had actually I had the opportunity to write the foreword to a book by Scott Douglas, uh, Running is My Therapy. And Great that book. yeah, an incredible book. And that experience, honestly, Scott, Scott's editor reached out to me through my website because he had heard about me, asked me to write 
um, the foreword. And that made me realize, oh, I could actually write a book one day. So I reached out to both Scott and the editor. Both of them gave me a wealth of information about how the actual process of writing a book goes. And so I had all of that in the back of my head. And then there was the birth of my son and seven months later, the, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And in that moment, I knew like, you know, I wrote this op-ed that went viral about yeah. my experience as a black runner and the experience of other black and brown people like me. And uh, speaking to this racial divide that exists in running and the fact that most people, most white people are, are completely unaware of it. And it was received mostly very well. But what was surprising to me was how new this information was to white people. Like white people were like, oh my God, I had never considered that. I had never considered environmental racism, the way that moving through space based on historical and present laws and biases impacts people. And I was like, all right, I got to write the book, right? <laughs> the book does not exist. And what I want is a world where my son can move freely through space, where my son doesn't become Tamir Rice, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, right? So I can write a book that can humanize this experience, open more people's eyes, and then cultivate change so that my son's world is different. And then with that, I actually... Um, Lauren Fleshman um, connected me with her agent, Daniel Greenberg, who is awesome. And he was like, you know, I didn't even have a full proposal. I just was putting together things. And he was like, this is the book. Like, this book needs to be out in the world. And he helped me so much. Um, Trish Daly, who's my editor, um, also a runner, lives in New York, who I've ironically never met in person. But she just has has supported me in a way that I now realize is unique. Not everybody has a great agent publisher who's really rooting for you. So, um, you know, this really came from, from me and a, a personal experience and knowing I had to put it out into the world and then having incredible support from people around me. When you sat down to write and put pen to paper, so to speak, or, or mm -hmm. fingers to keyboard and <laughs> yeah. start writing the book, who was your intended audience that you had mm. in mind in terms of? who you wanted to read the book and be most impacted by it. Yeah. Um, I actually, so there's two audiences for this and it was, um, and actually the part of this has changed through the title change. So initially the, the unbearable whiteness of running was more of like this manifesto that I was thinking. And that's how I started writing the book. Um, that was really pointing out all the things that was wrong <laughs> with the industry, right? And um, from a historical perspective and just sort of like moving through time, noting all of these things. And in that, the audience was more a white audience or a non-Black audience who did not have this information and insight. But what I realized as we were, you know, as I was writing in that way and speaking with my editor and other folks is that it didn't have, it didn't have me in it. It didn't have my personal story and to be honest, it's less, it's not as powerful of a book if you're just sitting here saying like, and here are all the things <laughs> that you did wrong or that are wrong. So along with that came with, all right, let's make this more personal. Let's tell my personal story. And then people, there are already so many people who are either connected to me or things that I've created, tell my personal story. And in doing that, I was really telling the story of what it is to exist in a Black body in this world. And then particularly running while black. So it shifted along with the title. And I think now what it is, it's really for black people and, you know, other um, marginalized groups, um, even folks who are part of maybe trans and disability communities, right? Like folks can read this and understand and relate to the experience of moving through space, not being centered or moving through this world, not being centered. And then I think white folks and folks with other privileges um, can start to think like, oh, wow, I never realized that whiteness was a default. I never realized that um, folks who have different lived experiences from me have felt a lack of belonging. So, you know, really broad audience, but I think there's something for everyone. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you describe it in that way, because as I was, I was reading it, so the title of the book, Running While Black, and I was like, you know, you could substitute 
a number of different words in there mm -hmm. for black. I mean, the specific stories and histories would be different, obviously, but I I saw just in my understanding of, of history and having been around the running industry, races, et cetera, for, I mean, two plus decades now, mm -hmm. like you could put, as you just described, women in there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, you could put... Um, you know, trans non-binary runners in there. I mean, Absolutely. various different people of, of color in there, like all these different marginalized groups who are trying to exist in a world. And it's right in the subtitle of your book that wasn't built for them. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not to get too far ahead, because I want to dig into the, the book itself, but I, I'm thinking about this and I'm like, you know, who knows what the impact is going to be. But mm -hmm. I imagine someone from another one of those groups may read this and see themselves in mm. parts of of your experience and it will spur them to tell you know their own stories um that would be the biggest gift and my hope right because i think you know another statistic that comes to mind a friend of mine wrote uh wrote this book called uh shoot brown like me or um, I forget, Christopher Rivas is the author, shout out to him. Um, but he cited this quote that was in the uh, a 2020 article in the New York Times that only 5% of books written since 1950 have been written by non-white authors, right? 5%. So think about what that means in terms of the stories that have been told, that have been given institutional support, that have been available for purchase, there's a huge percentage of people whose stories have never been told. So if you look at the story that of running that's been told, it's been, you know, for the most part, one particular story, which is obviously valid for a large amount of people in this country, in this world. But then there are so many other stories that have not been told. And I hope that's it. You know, like I think about my non-binary friends who are involved in um, finally getting, for example, the Boston Marathon to establish a category for non-binary folks with prize money. Like, I want to read Lauren, uh, Lauren, Jake, two of my activist friends. I want to read their book. I want to read Running While Non-Binary, you know, like, and being able to understand people's experiences. My intent is not to devalue, for example, your experience, Mario, right? Mm -hmm. It's just to show you other people are having a different experience. Maybe I wasn't aware of it. Now that I am, what can I do to expand my wonderful experience and ensure that they have it too? Yeah. Bingo. I mean, I think that's right on the money. And I think about this a lot just in my own work and what I'm trying to do through this podcast, which I'm not doing it perfectly if I have to admit that, but you know, no one's perfect and that's no that's going to yeah. happen but it's just showing people that running can mean different things to different people and mm -hmm. that's okay uh mm -hmm. and you can share a lot of experience as well but unless you're aware of it and you talk about it you're never going to know um and exactly. speaking for myself and I hope this is the case for you and the book comes out different medium but I think the same sort of thing can happen mm -hmm. is someone hears an interview just to use you for an example on my podcast here mm -hmm. and they haven't heard of you uh mm -hmm. they don't know who hasn't heard of me mario what are you talking about <laughs> well i mean you you know this right because there, there's a kidding. lot of people who listen to this podcast who follow it for the the professional athletes the coaches the competitive Absolutely. side of sport that's their Absolutely. that's their world and i come mm -hmm. from that world so i know mm -hmm. it very very well i've been fortunate through the years that I've been exposed to many other different parts of the running world and I've seen these incredible people who have incredible stories that are very relevant but also you know very um familiar to to a lot of other folks and the mm -hmm. best feedback that I ever get for this podcast and I hope it's the same for your book mm -hmm. is that hey thank you for you know sharing that person's story in your case your mm -hmm. story because mm -hmm. I'd never I never would have known about that or that person mm -hmm. and it opened my eyes to something that I didn't see. Um mm -hmm. and I, I think we just need more of that in general. Back to what I just said Absolutely. a few minutes ago, you know, this could be running while fill in the blank. Um mm -hmm. and you know the more people that are open to to reading those stories and being open to you know realizing that running is much more than just a bunch of skinny fast white guys <laughs> trying to go you know, for a BQ or an OTQ or whatever it, it happens to be, um, we're all going to be better off. And that's still, that's part of it. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And and to, you know, and you get into this in the books. I, I think this is like, for me, um, 
it's definitely like part memoir, but it's mm-hmm. also part history lesson. I mean, right before you even get into the writing, the first thing at the front mm-hmm. of the book is this timeline, freedom of mm-hmm. movement. It's like running history, black people's reality. And that goes on for like four pages, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the mm-hmm. beginning. And then throughout the book, I mean, you're given these historical examples. And if we go back to, you know, the first big running boom, you know, in the seventies, it really was like a skinny, fast white guy's world. And that's Absolutely. what it was for a long time. And then, you know, women got more opportunities mm-hmm. and are still fighting for those, you know, mm-hmm. opportunities. And now what we're seeing between, you know, like I, I registered for the Boston Marathon yesterday. Mm-hmm. I was stoked to see male, female, non-binary as a choice yep. just yep. on the on the application fee. And I, I tried to put myself in someone else's shoes for that moment and be like, what does that feel like for them mm-hmm. to to be seen and realize exactly. like there's a place for me here. There's a box that, you know, exactly. that I can check. Um and, and, you know, I credit you for this. I credit a lot of other people, but um, that's happening more and more in, mm-hmm. in running now. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not happening quickly. It's happening slowly, but it's happening mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. gaining momentum. And that just gives me a lot of hope just for the, the future of running. Sorry to go off on a complete no, I mean, tangent there, but it's, I, I totally agree. And the thing is that I too share in that joy. Right. And what I understand there's a sentiment out there also, and that's what we're sort of, we're trying to push these people along, those that are willing to be, you know, moved, is that adding the X, the non-binary category does not take away from you as a man. <laughs> and it doesn't take away from me as a woman. It just creates space for more people to enter. And that's the thing with privilege, right? Like when you've had it for so long, when somebody else gets access to that privilege, it actually feels like something's being taken away from you. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just that somebody else is getting access to that privilege that honestly should never have been a privilege. So that's what I think is hard. And you see you see the reaction to that, right? Like, you know, these, uh, not to go totally into the whole alt-right thing, but some of the pe- things that people are chanting is like, X group will not replace us, right? Yeah. But it's so rather than recognizing that there's more space for people, it's like I'm going to be replaced, and that's that's a really dangerous, um, a dangerous opinion to hold. And you know, um, but hopefully, through more people telling their stories and being humanized, we move towards change. Mm-hmm. While you were researching and writing the book, what were some of the biggest things that caught you by surprise? Yeah, you know, I want to go to the timeline because that really there were two big dates that. Um, really stood out to me that led me to want to put this timeline together. So there's 1963, which is when um, Bill Bowerman hosted that run at Hayward Field, inviting mm-hmm. everyone to come join him and run in Eugene. And I, I'm a huge history nerd, and it ha- in part has to do with my growing up and my parents always talking about history and history being alive in our house. And also just recognizing then in school that my history was never told. So it became this like, always this search for myself. Um, But yeah, 1963, I started thinking about, okay, well, what else was going on in 1963? Oh shit, like Black people couldn't own homes. (laughs) Black people couldn't vote. Um, Interracial marriage wasn't a thing. And I'm like, and this is when Bill Bowerman was inviting, quote unquote, everyone to come out and run. And that was just like shocking to me. Uh, Then the other date was 1896. And I remember that date from Plessy versus Ferguson. That was a date of that um, court decision that allowed uh, separate but equal to be a thing. That's the decision that, um, you know, institutionalized Jim Crow segregation. 1896 was also the year of the first modern Olympics. 1897 uh, was when the BAA hosted its either its first Brooklyn, uh, excuse me, its first Boston Marathon or the foundation of the BAA. I can't remember. But again, just the cognitive dissonance. Okay. Black people were being told that they could only access lesser facilities, couldn't walk in the front door. And like the Olympics was saying, it was just like, wait a second. So there's no way running this sport that involves being outdoors, having access to resources, feeling free, feeling uh, unencumbered, there's no way it was built with us in mind. And that really like unlocked this excitement around, oh, wow, I can like breathe life into this history. Cause I know I'm a nerd, but I get that not everybody loves history. <laughs> and I started digging deeper into the story of Ted Corbett mm-hmm. and Ted Corbett is 
just the tip of the iceberg. Like even Corbett himself, and I know this through Gary, Ted Corbett says, there are so many other talented people who the world needs to know, right? So thinking about just the power of the New York Pioneer Movement and this, so history is part of my personal story. Uncovering this history of Ted Corbett, the Pioneer Club has also been a really big part of my story. And so I wanted to make sure that that was like weaved throughout. And ultimately this point about history is very fragile and it's intentional that we don't know the true stories, right? So this is, you know, a piece of trying to get to that. I thought it was an effective strategy because if you had written just a straight memoir, this is my experience mm-hmm. moving through the world. It's easy for someone to read that and say, yeah, but that's not this mm-hmm. person's experience. It's not my mm-hmm. experience. That's not this experience. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But when you weave in the historical context, you can see what built up to, mm-hmm. you know, your experience, why someone else's might be a bit different. And I think the the greatest role that history can play is helping us understand the present. And, exactly. and also looking ahead to what could be in the future if we go one direction versus another. And you did a little bit of that, mm-hmm. you know, toward the end of the book. And I want to, um, in a little while here, like dig into that more mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. you. But I thought that was like a really effective strategy. It's interesting just to hear Thank you describe you. it already in this conversation, how the original like idea for the book of just being like this, this manifesto (laughs) uh, would eventually became like kind of part history lesson, part memoir. And um, again, like there's no original manuscript to go off of, but I feel like this was just a a much more engaging and and effective read to have the impact that you want to have with it. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm so glad. Right. And it's like, I spent so much of that year writing that one version. And then I was like, oh my gosh, am I really going to pivot and like uh, piece this apart? But so worth it. And I'm so proud of, you know, what folks are going to get to read in just a few weeks. What was it like for you to just revisit some of these personal memories of Mm. yours, unearthing the history, and then just hearing from other people about their experiences of running while Black? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, it was, you know, cathartic in some instances, but also really painful to revisit. Um, and I'll go through all of these. But ultimately, what I was left with was like my life making sense now. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, you know, everybody should get this opportunity to sit back and reflect and dig into these moments and see how they um, have created the person who you are today. And I see like, it, you know, my childhood is very much a part of this story because I've always been that person who has been standing up for myself and questioning what I've been taught. And, and I didn't see just as clearly as I do now, having written the book, how like, I've always been the same Allison. Maybe my platform has changed. Maybe my issues have moved into a different space, but it's, I've always been there. Um, and the piece about hearing other people's story of running while black, you know, really validated my experience. Not that I needed validation because I have always known this to be my truth and my experience, but, you know, Alicia Montano is, I feel so lucky to call her a friend of mine now. And she shows up a lot in this book and the, the life that she's led as a black woman in this sport has just not been fair at all. And it's a wonder that she has as much fight and endurance in her because people have really not wanted to see her succeed. I think about uh, Myrna Valerio, who's in my book, and Myrna too, you know, as a fat Black woman in this world, people would really rather her just not exist. (laughs) People, she makes people so uncomfortable just by being herself. So hearing these other stories of, um, oh my God, Meb Koflewski, who, honestly doesn't ever really speak to these issues and he nobody should have to right he's i felt really honored that he opened up and shared like he is the goat he is the best of the best but he ultimately is a black man in this world so it was validating it was really painful and and upsetting um but i feel lucky that these folks and others have trusted me in bringing their story into this book what do you hope that readers ultimately take away from it You know, I hope that readers think a couple of things, but I I think I hope that ultimately readers uh, readers feel empowered 
to be leaders, right? Feel empowered and recognize that there's there's an institutional piece here, right? Like there are systems that need to change, but I, I as an individual can do something about it, right? In the book, there's this chapter called Everything is Connected, and it shows the way that everything from decisions that local governments make to governing bodies make um, dictate what the experience of running is. And what that means, particularly on the local level, is that you can be civically engaged and you can do something, right? Like I live in the suburbs now, like beautiful tree coverage. I actually noticed the other day um, that Seattle was 77 degrees. When I got to my house, it was 67 degrees, right? Like, and this is just one anecdotal thing. There's people who actually do studies, but that's 10 degrees cooler. That meant that I could very easily go for a run and feel fine. Whereas somebody in the city in Seattle was contending with 77 degrees sun beating down on them, right? So that means that there are probably more people, and I don't just say probably, there are more people in the outdoors here where I live than in Seattle. So, okay, what does that mean um, in terms of you being civically engaged? You can think about, well, how are what are the plans in the city for, mm-hmm. for sidewalks, for tree coverage, for uh, what kind of buildings are going up? for zoning, right? Like all of those things are then connected with what a neighborhood looks like and feels like and who can run comfortably. So yeah, I hope people feel empowered to do something. And I also hope people feel like, particularly because of the epilogue, people realize that, okay, well, whether the institutions change or not, like we're doing it, right? And that I think is like a beautiful, um, hopeful note I wanted to make sure that people left feeling hopeful because ultimately I'm hopeful, right? Like I think having children is the ultimate show of hope and I am hopeful that things are and can change. How can people start to take those next steps to make changes in their community that are going to create opportunities for more people to just just get outside in general, mm-hmm. hopefully run, but especially for people of color and marginalized communities? I think the first thing is awareness and it sounds like such a a simple thing, but truly there are people who spend their whole life without a sense of awareness of their self and their experience or the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So when I say awareness, and I think we actually talked about this uh, over a year ago on the podcast is when you enter a space and you look around at these conferences, these industry conferences, and everybody is a white male in their late thirties, forties, fifties, like, don't you, wonder why that is like think about like the crazy probability that would make that possible like no it's not circumstance it's not by accident it's because okay well who has access who has who has had access to capital or investment to be able to open a store to be able to have an event to be able to have a non-traditional career right like where you wouldn't have to have health insurance or 401k right so i think having an awareness is is so essential i think about that in terms of the identities where I don't have privilege, like, oh, this is on the fourth floor. There was no elevator. Nobody in who has a disability is going to be here, right? Oh my gosh, I hosted a race and I've hosted races in the past that only had the ability to uh, identify as male and female. That really should have been man, woman, non-binary, other, right? So if you just start to have an awareness, then you can start to make steps towards progress. And to be honest, you can't get it completely right. Um, because you know, the world, things are dynamic, but that's, that's the awareness that I would have. And, and you actually see my process in the book, right? Like you see me going to get my master's and Mm -hmm. journaling and, and thinking about my identities and what does that mean? And how do I, how has that changed my experience in this world? So I would just say, start there and it's not easy. (laughs) So start there. In the past few years that you're, I'm going to say roles because there are multiple mm-hmm. ones of them in the running industry have evolved. Have you seen that change start to take place in a meaningful way? I mean, in our last conversation, we talked a lot about the RIDC, the running industry mm-hmm. um, diversity coalition, which I mean, since that conversation has brought on Kira Smalls as executive yeah, director, awesome. which is something that we talked about specifically, not not her, but having someone to fill that role because you were kind of the de facto, yes. you know, for, <laughs> for a while. But I mean, you've worked very closely with brands such as Wazelle, with Brooks and mm-hmm. and others over the years attending, you know, more events, having a seat at 
the table like what have you seen just in the in the last few years from your experience that that one excites you but also mm-hmm. that still continues to worry you yeah well what excites me is that many people have begun to have this sense of awareness and have moved away from feeling guilt and shame and moved towards action and i think for myself personally this has also been a point of personal growth and something i continue to work on because i am not perfect but that like making somebody feel guilty or shameful is enticing, right? Like it feels so good to shame someone, to call them out, to like put them in their place. And I have done that. And it's also felt good on my, it's felt good on my end. And then the person like sort of has to like snake around and, and like, that's just like a, a sick truth, right? But guilt and shame makes people go inward and go undercover and never want to make a mistake again. Um, never want to speak about something, never want to take a chance. And it breaks them down as a human, right? Yeah. Versus enlisting people to be on board with you, recognizing that they will make mistakes, still feeling that frustration that they're like, you know, on the couch, not ready to do this 5K. Um, but so I've seen people move away. Um, and I also have, you know, I do my best not to put people in a place of guilt and shame, but. I got to tell you, it is, it is enticing <laughs> um, to get people on board as collaborators. And so I've seen, you know, uh, events like the um, TRE, the running events mm-hmm. who are doing, who've done a lot, who did a lot last year, who are doing even more this year to make that event more open and uh, resonate more deeply with larger communities um, with running USA and, you know, the thing that that worries me is that ultimately this is an endurance sport, <laughs> right? Like running is an endurance sport and um, this attention to other folks, to, to Black, Indigenous, people of color, to trans, non-binary folks, you know, it's an endurance sport to keep them top of mind and to keep doing, to keep us top of mind and to keep doing the work to bring us in. Because it's very easy and very comfortable to just be like, oh, man, you know, like, Budgets aren't where they were and budgets are not going to be where they were because we all know inflation and, you know, running industry is feeling the effects of it. You know, let's just let's just cut this thing. Right. It's like in school where the arts and and PE get cut first right? because their seat is not essential. So that's what worries me. Will this will the industry have the endurance to keep it up? And, you know, time will tell. Yeah, I, I'm interested to to see as well. It's interesting you bring up like guilt and shame because I think yeah. they can be effective in the right mm-hmm. places, but they're also not sustainable fuels. If exactly. if you're constantly hitting people with guilt and shame, they're going to be turned off and then no progress is going to be made. But I think just kind of normalizing things mm-hmm. as, as best we can, like just welcoming in, you know, you as much as you'd welcome in me to, mm-hmm. to your group. Mm-hmm. I think people, like I've seen this in my own experience with on the ground groups here where I live, like people experience that and it doesn't feel weird to them. You know, mm-hmm. they just feel like, okay, I'm on level ground with everybody mm-hmm. else here. And it's, it's not intimidating and that doesn't cost any money. So it's like, exactly. you know, if more of that can happen, you know, outside of like industry events and, you know, the, the things that get a lot of the attention, like, you know, on social media and, you know, all of that, I think that can be sustainable. Um, you Absolutely. know, just, just in our communities at like a very like local level. You know, exactly. and it's got to start small, kind of wherever you are. Um, and if that happens in enough places, you know, then you've got a widespread change. And, you know, I think about there's a difference when I'm, you know, I'm talking about like guilting and shaming individuals, again, is not something that um, tends to lead to sustain <laughs> changes. I will say there's a difference when you're dealing with institutions and there's a power imbalance and you're mm-hmm. thinking about something like, um, a company, right? If you think about, I don't know, MX or Chase, I don't know why those came to mind. Or you think about these larger institutions that have um, institutionalized racism and that are um, honestly have no incentive to do something different, right? Um, or you think about the Me Too movement, right? Where you think about uh, women who had were experiencing this imbalance of power and had no other way, then you absolutely use all resources available to you and the most important is your voice and using it. Right. So there is nuance here. I do want to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also want to say that there's like no rule book and that's why I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes 
And so even in like being a champion of this work, you know, you have to know that you're valuable and that, um, you know, you mess up and you also have to gather yourself and try again. One thing I want to dive into with you is community building, which we talked quite a bit about in our last Mm -hmm. conversation. But I think your perspective is like so interesting and unique here as someone who grew up in New York City, like you laid your roots in Harlem, which is a borough that's majority black. And Mm -hmm. now you live, as you just described, in the suburbs of Seattle. (laughs) And it's an area that's majority white. I mean, couldn't be more different. I mean, literally opposite ends of the country. What are some of the differences that you've experienced in the past year plus that you've been in the Seattle area, building up community there versus in New York, where you spent many years prior? And then the, the second question, which we can hold off on for a second, is, is the similarities between building community in those two places. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, the biggest difference is the racial composition that I definitely took for granted, right? Like, even though in New York, of course, there's there's racism and there's bias and there's lots of issues with, you know, police and moving through space, you know, you just sort of take for granted that everywhere you go, there will be other Black people and um, your neighbors will be Black. And again, of course, there's issues like gentrification and all that stuff. But coming here, like literally when when I, so my, where I live is a suburb, when I go into the city and this is a city that's, I think, I don't know, I want to say like 7% Black, but my where I live is 2% black. So when I'm in the city and I see other black people, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many black people. And there's like five of us, right? So it's just, it feels very different. Um, There is, in terms of building community, also like, you know, New York has this super large and active club and crew scene where every weekend there's like a million different events, right? Like you can't even go to all the events that are hosted on a weekend. And here that that's not the case, right? There are much fewer groups. The groups here also historically have been very focused on like racing and being competitive Mm -hmm. and don't have this like community feel. So, and I think that also goes along with like what people call the Seattle freeze where people in general just don't, don't communicate and aren't friendly and are sort of like passive aggressive Um, versus in New York, people are aggressive, aggressive. (laughs) So, so it, it makes for difficult community building. When I got here, I was sort of like, okay, how am I going to find my space? And to get to your second question around things that are similar, what I did though, was I looked for, you know, no matter where you go, there are people who are disrupting the status quo and who are like pushing up against that. Right. So I found CSRD. I had actually reached out to um, David and Ashley, who are two of the co-founders of that group. We had been in touch via Instagram and I got here and David immediately was like, here's my cell phone number. Like, let's catch up. And this is a group that is highly racially diverse, um, has a walking group. Um, Ashley is because of her own personal story, which I'm not going to tell, she can be on this show and tell that. Um, She's very committed to making sure that people of all paces, of all bodies, of all experiences is included. So I looked for the disruptors, right? Um, They put me in touch with people from Black Girls Run and Black Men Run. And we started to, you know, talk about how great it would be if people shook off that Seattle freeze and if we started collaborating more. And this idea of the Seattle Running Collective, which is still very much in its infancy, I sort of honestly modeled it after New York Roadrunners, which New York Roadrunners is not without its flaws, but what it has done is created a real sense of community and excitement around coming together and bringing all different groups together. So yeah, we've we've reimagined what if we had this space where um, we're sharing different events, where um, we're allowing people to know like, yeah, you can run with CSCRD on Monday, on Monday and then Totem Lake Club, Totem Run Club on Tuesday. And, you know, like we're not gangs at war with one another. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can come together and fundraise and um, other collective actions that we can't do by ourselves. So, yeah, uh, what's different is everything. <laughs> what's the same is that there are disruptors in this space and ultimately everybody wants to feel a sense of belonging 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I pulled from. Yeah. It, it's interesting to hear you describe that. Cause as I think about it, um, as someone who's spent time in New York and Seattle, like New York, you know, you have your boroughs, but even within those boroughs, you have like your neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost easier in some ways to kind of get people together because they can mm-hmm. walk a few blocks over or jog over exactly. a few blocks the and like meet up. of it. Yep. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. they just jump on the train and they're there, you know, in, in five or 10 minutes. And, you know, from an effort standpoint, that's pretty low compared to being in an area that sprawls a bit more and totally. I got to get, I got to get in the car. And if we're going to go at, you know, 6 PM, I got to fight traffic, you know, totally. to get there. It's just easier for me to stay at home, you know, and, and run on my own. And, and like, I understand that to, mm-hmm. to some degree, but when it comes to, you know, community building and just exposing yourself to, to other people, um, you know, I think that is a big barrier in a Absolutely. lot of, you know, Absolutely. suburban places like that. I mean, and I've seen, yeah. I've certainly seen that elsewhere too. You know, David always brings up this point and he talks again about like the city planning of how West coast cities were built versus East coast cities. And this idea of like, even LA, right? Like all these cities that were built around highways and, you know, then suburbs being outside of cities. And so, yeah, I mean, like if I want to go to a run with people, I have to drive 45 minutes in the morning and that's way different from jogging two blocks to get to Harlem run. Mm -hmm. Um, So that also speaks to why there is maybe this like freeze, right? Like these, and that's, what's also, again, goes back to this, this idea of everything is connected. Like things just aren't, how they are because this is the way they they have to be and have been for all time. There's always a story, a history behind that. And when you get to the history, um, you can really plan for the future. Mm-hmm. One thing that's top of mind for me right now, because I just published this podcast yesterday, I had a conversation mm-hmm. with a guy named Ruben Sansa. He's from Cape Verde and he moved to the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. Oh my God, there's so many folks from Cape Verde there. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and it's interesting because I've had Sydney Baptista on my podcast Mm. and his his family's from Cape Verde and they settled in that same area. Ruben is a hell of a runner, really Mm. good. I mean, he represented Cape Verde in the Olympics in 2012. Mm. He's represented them at the World Championships. He's been top 25 at the Boston Marathon twice. He's not a professional, works full time, Mm. has a family, all that. He's very, very good. And he was very good in high school. And I remember because we recruited him to Mm. come to my school. And in our conversation for the podcast, he was describing how he got into track to yeah. keep in shape for soccer, which was his first love. But he showed a lot of promise as a distant runner. And the coaches could see that. And they were like, Ruben, you can be a very good distant runner. And they and they were right. Mm. But he couldn't run cross country for his school in inner city Boston because the Boston public schools mm. didn't have a high school cross country program. All the suburbs around Boston do, and they have mm-hmm. some very good programs, but there was no official program in the city of Boston, he had to make a case for himself to be Mm. able to race as an individual at some of these races. And not much has changed since then. Mm. This was, you know, 20 years ago that he was in that situation and talking about it and looking into it more, that is not uncommon in other cities Mm -hmm. across the country. So, Mm -hmm. you know, something like distance running, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, a lifestyle sport. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, most people who, you know, sprint in high school, like you're only going to sprint to a point, like maybe it's just, it's just not something that you do like for the duration of your life, unless you're like really hardcore at it. But like Mm -hmm. distance running is definitely a lifestyle sport. And there are a lot of people that I know who ran cross country in high school Mm -hmm. distance on the track. And, you know, they didn't compete in college, but you know, they're like, well, you know, running something that's good for my health and it's, you know, fairly accessible and I, and I can do it on my own. I don't have to race, you know, whatever. So they, they do it to some degree throughout their life. Um, but the seed was planted, you know, in cross country when they were in high school. And it just like struck me. I'm like, there are so many kids like Ruben who have a ton of talent who are in the inner city who could be really, really good at this, that never get the chance. Um, Like he got a chance and he, you know, he was able to, you know, have a all American career in college, you know, create a lot of opportunities for himself. And and I think about that, like just, you know, creating opportunities at, at that level for 
people of color, marginalized communities, especially in the in the inner city and like planting those seeds early enough that this could become, you know, a lifelong type of pursuit. It could become a lifestyle for them. And and like this is purely empirical, but I, I think about that. And I'm like, well, I think that's a big contributor to why Huge. we don't see as many Huge. people of color in running, in distance running specifically. That's huge. And I'm so glad you, for you sharing that story. I'm going to go back and listen to that episode because I'd love to chat with this person. But I mean, that's that's precisely it. And I can go in so many different directions thinking about this. Like I think again about how everything is connected and you mm-hmm. think about, okay, well, what are the resources that a school has? And honestly, that school is probably, you know, you could say a lot of things about schools, but that school is probably doing the best it can with the resources that it has, Mm -hmm. right? So not offering this program is not because we don't want, we want to stop kids from, you know, trying all these things because these are limited resources. I think about how, you know, my, I've learned this, this term recently called environmental migration, how the, the. Um, the idea for my for me to move to actually for my parents to move to Teaneck, New Jersey, and now for me and my husband to move to Seattle was really an environmental migration because we're, we were very thoughtful about well what kind of experiences do we want my son Corey to have? And look, if Corey wants to start sailing, like we live on the lake. If Corey wants a lacrosse team, we're in a suburb that offers a lacrosse team, right? And like it should not be that way. Like your your zip code where you were born, even your zip code in New York City determines your life expectancy, determines Mm -hmm. the amount of money you'll make as an older person. It determines what experiences you have. And that is the reason why running, long distance running isn't open for everybody. And I think people really want to push back and say that running is for everybody. But you know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, probably because they haven't thought deeply about what it means, what it actually takes to run long distance. And so I hope this book and similarly that podcast episode with this person like uncovers that. And that's not saying we're not trying to take away from anybody else's experience. We're just trying to say, hey, this this exists too. Yeah. And I think the more people that are made aware of that, I do think mm-hmm. it just starts with awareness can get their wheels turning and think about, okay, Mm -hmm. well, how can I help to create those types of opportunities in my community where I live? Because again, like I'm I'm a big believer that this has to start like at a very like local level and, you know, in, in a bunch of different places for there to be a a widespread change. Like it's going to be like this kind of bottoms up approach. It's not going to come from the top down. Right. Coaches have such a huge impact and I'm getting like goosebumps thinking about my coaches who have like coaches who said simple things to me, like you're talented. Like I see a future for you in this. And like, I don't know, maybe whether they did or did it right. Like it doesn't even matter, but it's like these adults in, in these spaces have incredible power to change your whole life. Yeah. And so thinking about how coaches can sort of like review their own biases around who's here, start thinking of ways that they can bring other folks in. Right. Because there's a coach in my book that I, or there's a, well, he's now a coach growing up. He was, you know, an athlete Mm -hmm. and he recalls that his coach never pushed him, never exposed him to anything beyond the 400 meters. Right. And so you're talking about a kid who doesn't have the perspective of an older person, that there are all these other things available to you. Imagine if that coach had just said one day, like, I want to throw you into the 5k, like, let's just see what happens to you. Right. Like those little decisions are actually huge and have ripple effects in people's lives and then intergenerationally. Yeah. And I think just those, those conversations that happen organically, like whether it's between like a a coach and a young athlete, but even within adult groups, wherever they, they happen to be. I mean, I I've seen this as someone who coaches a wide range of, of athletes, just calling someone an athlete for the first time. I mean, I had Mm. this happen three weeks ago. Um, the woman said, no one's ever called me an athlete before. Wow. And it's like, wow, that's like, it was a reminder to me. It's like, it's powerful, you mm-hmm. know, to, to, to empower someone like that and be like, no, you, you are an athlete oh, just as that. everyone else is here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you continue to, to show up, like you're going to get better at this, you know, mm-hmm. and, and some mm-hmm. people just need to hear it. Um, and I mm-hmm. think the earlier that they hear it, you know, because younger people are are certainly more impressionable, like mm-hmm. back to the whole lifestyle thing, like the, mm-hmm. the, the more this can be like a lifestyle for more people, no matter, you know, who you are, the color of your skin, your age, so on and so forth. 
Absolutely. I mean, I see that like this is why I think being a parent is just like the weirdest and coolest experiment. Right? Like my son, I, I he's a little artist and a little dancer. And I just like love how he's three. But when you say these things, he then like embodies that thing. Yeah, more. Of course. It's like so cool. Like and everybody, everybody deserves that. But that is not the way the world or this country currently works. So mm. we got work to do. The last chapter of your book is mm-hmm. called Reimagining mm. the Run. And if I could offer a, a little bit of a, a critique, I just, I wish that was a much longer mm. chapter. And <laughs> I like that critique. <laughs> now that I, I have you and we could talk about it, let's do a little thought experiment. Like if you could go beyond what you had in that last chapter of the book, you know, reimagining the run, like what more can you see? in Mm -hmm. the future for Black people, other people of color, marginalized communities as it relates to being a part of what we call the running community? Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's, um, that's, that's always a struggle when you're writing and like, how long, what do I say? And, And part of it's, brevity is that this is something that I'm doing this in this book, I'm reimagining this run, and then I'm inviting everybody else to reimagine the run with me, right? Like based on what I've said and the information you have, um, how how can we all do this? I think, you know, we've talked about how history plays such an important part and how when you know actual history, right, not just what certain people wanted to write about those moments, you actually see that you were there in that history. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to give it away. But I think about how that relates to other communities, right? There are so many stories. There are so many histories of marginalized people, of trans non-binary people participating in the sport of running whose story hasn't been told. And therefore you feel like you're the only or you feel disconnected, right? And I can make that. That's kind of abstract. I think about there's this activist. um, Their name is Alok. I forget their last name. But they on Instagram are always sharing about how non-binary and trans people have existed since the beginning of time, right? And all across the world, there are examples of this where there's a third gender, where there are um, people who occupy both feminine and masculine energy. You think about two-spirit people, right? Like since time immemorial, there's been more than two genders in this world. But history would have you seem like it's this new, quote unquote, aberration Mm -hmm. and that this is some like liberal agenda. So what does that do for somebody like Nikki Hiltz? Right. And I don't know this to be true of their experience. They do feel like they're the only and in often places they are the only and they are completely disconnected from a history of what I would imagine are incredible people who were non-binary, who didn't identify within two strict genders, who have performed incredibly well in the sport, who have laid the path for the work that they're doing. So I think part of reimagining the future is actually accessing histories that haven't been told so you can connect and say, are you kidding? My people have done this. And maybe not in the big way, but maybe in small ways, and you can reconnect with that. So that's one thing. When I think about reimagining the future, I think about going back and parsing out all these histories that we don't know. Then the other piece, I think, is that obviously um, competition is, you know, is is fun and it's exciting for folks. And um, I think that there is enough money and support in this world for every elite athlete to be compensated and paid what they're worth. But I also think that there's enough money in this world to put into programs that um, give access to people of all ages to running and and elite level experiences. I think about how when I was signed with a brand previously, I got you know this amazing trip where we went out to um, Red Rocks and got to experience things like a sound bath and uh, got to experience like PT and got to eat all this healthy vegan plant-based food. And that experience unlocked for me, like, whoa, there are different things that I can do for my body that make an impact, that make me feel good. So what I'm advocating for is not huge experiences paid for, but that the kind of information that elites um, and people with money have access to should be democratized, Mm -hmm. right? Like you shouldn't live your whole life and only get a blood test when the doctor tells you your health is failing, right? Like you should 
have access to these resources so you can live the best version of yourself. Like that's, so ultimately it's that people should have access to histories and see themselves in it. And people should have access to resources and experiences so that they can show up fully in this sport and world. Yeah. I, I will second all of that. I think about it. I mean, a big part of how I spend my working time is coaching athletes. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have heard from prospective athletes. I'm not an elite, so I don't deserve coaching. Mm -hmm. And the conversation is every athlete deserves a great coach. Yes, Mm -hmm. coaches can certainly benefit elites. I actually think they can benefit newer runners Mm -hmm. a lot more, can Mm -hmm. have much more of of an impact. Back to what we were Mm -hmm. saying earlier about like starting at a youth level. You know, the Mm -hmm. elites, most of them have been doing this, you know, half their life, if not Mm-hmm. longer you know they've mm-hmm. they've kind of they've kind of followed that that path and had that guidance you know the entire way it's helped them get to where they are mm-hmm. um i feel like more people need to have access to, totally. to that um totally. you know to to help them on their on their journey like in running to help them feel like they belong to let mm-hmm. them know like hey it's okay that it's going to suck every once in a while stay with it mm-hmm. like you mm-hmm. know like just just keep at it um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so you know to piggyback off of of what you just said i mean i i hope to see more of that too as we reimagine what the running community can be for so many people exactly and this this question this idea of deserving right i mean that ultimately means Some people are worthy, some people are unworthy. And that is a natural conclusion when we live in a capitalist Mm -hmm. society that um, really where your worth is determined by what you produce, right? And it's like, or what you become. And like, you don't ever have to become anything more than what you are. Like, I hope there's growth in terms of experiences and what you learn about yourself. But like, you know, there's no, like, if people could detach worth from what they produce, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but we'd all be happier, right? And we all deserve coaching. We all deserve sort of access to a safe, clean place to live, to mental health care, to, you know, those are things that we deserve. And and I, it's like, again, it goes back to me being a hopeful and I guess ultimately have a positive outlook on life that I, that I'm working towards these things. Like if I thought we were all just fucked, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, well, let me just make as much as money as I can and insulate myself, which people are doing that. Um, but it's like, no, how can I be actively involved in the conversation so that hopefully we move to a more humane place? Along those lines, it leads me into my last question. You are going on book tour to yes. promote running while black. I know that you're going to be in Oakland at Renegade Running. I'm yeah. excited to be there and finally meet you in person because <laughs> uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, we played some <laughs> we played some text tag at CIM yes. last year. But where else will you be going on your book tour? I'm I'm interested in how you chose like where you know where you want to show up and yeah. who you want to reach. Yeah. So, you know, there was um, the obvious choice for book launch week was like, I'm going to be in New York. I'm going to be in Harlem uh, because Harlem set the blueprint and that will make even more sense when you read the book. Um, But I will be going to Chicago, um, like where I I chose cities that one have um, a big that either have an important place in quote unquote running history or in sort of uh, in like activist spaces. So I'll be in Chicago. I'll be going to Minneapolis, which I'm really excited for. I'll be partnering not only with Mill City Running, um, but also with um, Native Women Runs, uh, Renew Earth Running, November Project, Black Girls Run, uh, Girls on the Run, so local organizations. And, and hopefully this event, there's an event that happens at George Floyd Square. We're still trying to figure out whether that would be, um, whether that's an, an appropriate thing to do in that space. Um, then I'll be in Austin, Texas. I'll be in DC, Los Angeles, Oakland. I'll be in Michigan, spending a lot of time in Michigan, Detroit. Uh, I'll be in, um, damn, I can't even remember the two other cities, but I'll be, (laughs) I'll be visiting. Um, so my co-chair in the running industry diversity coalition is Chris Lampin Crowell, who has, um, a retail store called Gazelle Sports. Sports. Yeah. And just one of the best people in the industry. He really is. He really is. And we have had such an amazing, transformative uh, relationship 
And so I'm really excited to be visiting him and also um, JB, who has another retail store called Playmakers. So I'll be visiting both of their stores. Um, and yeah, then I'll be, I think, I think that might be everywhere. I'm also doing some virtual events, which is really cool. I will say that, you know, um, well, the pandemic was awful. We all know that, but what it did was allow for this new like hybrid model, right? Like Mm -hmm. as much as in-person is, is everything. There are also places that I can't go, you know, in person and I'll still be able to connect with people. So um, excited for this hybrid book tour possibility. And where can people find out where you are going to be to see if you'll be in a city near them? Everything will be on my website, Allison M as in Mary Um, That's also where you can pre-order my book and then get some pre-order incentives, which includes a cut chapter of the book and um, an excerpt. So go to my website and you can also go to my Instagram, which is the same handle, Allison M. Desir. And I'll be, I mean, you can't miss it. If you follow me, I'm going to be sharing like, you know, all the time. The book blitz is going to be on. Yeah. Oh, it's on. Um, And yeah, I'm like excited to, I got some amazing blurbs from people who I really respect who read my book and loved it. Um, Even this opportunity to be on your podcast um, is really cool. And so I'm just, I'm thankful. I hope as many people as possible can read this and that there's more love than hate. (laughs) I share that sentiment. The book is running while black. It's available everywhere beginning on October 18th. You can pre-order it before then get all of the benefits that Allison just described, but I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great to have you back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, whenever you want me, I am here. I really appreciate you. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to both New Balance and the Monterey Bay Half Marathon for help making it possible. The new Fuel Cell Rebel V3 from New Balance is everything I enjoyed about its predecessor, but with a more supportive upper, a little more cushion underfoot, and a more durable outsole. What it doesn't have is much more weight, checking in at under 8 ounces, making it a great go-fast shoe for tempo runs, track workouts, and interval sessions on the road. The Fuel Cell Rebel V3 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. The Monterey Bay Half Marathon is back. Registration is now open for this fast, scenic course along the beautiful Monterey Bay coastline in California. If you're looking for a fall race with a high potential for a PR, this is it. Sign up to run this coast on November 13th at MontereyBayHalfMarathon.org. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He has produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.